0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Better Off. We're going deep into the financial crisis and its aftermath with Jesse Eisinger. He's the author of The Chicken Chick Club, why the Justice Department fails to prosecute executives.
1: This is why you prosecute individuals, individual executives, because if you're worried about the collateral consequences of prosecuting a large company, if you're worried about the employees who might be put out of business or the destabilization of the capital markets that would come from an indictment of a large company, focus on individuals. That's the solution.
0: Welcome to the Better Off podcast sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, we're coming up on the anniversary of like the worst part of the financial crisis. You probably tried to forget about this September, October of 2008. And almost nine years later, where do we stand? Who's been thrown in jail, you ask? Not that many people, by the way. Our guest today is Jesse Isinger. He's a senior reporter and editor at ProPublica. He is the author of a new book. It's called The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Now, you probably know Jesse's byline. He and his colleague won the Pulitzer Prize. For national reporting back in 2011, he and Jake Bernstein, for their national reporting on the exposure of questionable practices on Wall Street that contributed to the nation's economic meltdown. Uh, He was a columnist for The Times deal book section. He has appeared in The Atlantic and The New Yorker. So with that background, Jesse is the perfect person to help explain to us what happened with the lack of prosecution in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So right now, my interview with Jesse Eisinger.
1: You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger.
0: Jesse Isinger, welcome to Better Off. It's so nice to have you here after reading your byline for so many years. Thank you
1: for having me. I appreciate
0: that. Um, So, Jesse, we start the interview off with a very, very hard question. You ready? Uh Uh-huh. What was the best financial decision you've
1: ever made? Wow. Best financial decision I've ever made. Well, you know, I'm in nonprofit journalism. I <laughs> you probably say that I have never made a really good financial decision. But, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I've i just gotten very lucky. I've been able to do the kinds of work that I want to do and get paid pretty well for it. Um, as a reporter, you know, I um, early on I was covering finance and had a little nibble here and there from Wall Street and never really wanted to go and managed to, you know, work in journalism and pay the bills. So uh, I feel that the decision was to stick with something I loved and hope that it would work out, and it has.
0: You're blessed.
1: I am. That's pretty great. I mean, I I work at ProPublica as a nonprofit, but uh, I really think of it as journalism paradise. I'm really lucky.
0: That's so fabulous. Okay, so you've written this new book. It's called The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. So first, explain the title so that I don't have to keep saying it and get in trouble.
1: Sure. So the title comes from uh, Jim Comey, of all people. Your listeners will know him from just being fired as FBI director uh, by Donald Trump. But 15 years ago, he became the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And you have to understand a little bit about what the Southern District is. It is the premier office of the Department of Justice, particularly for corporate crime, securities crime, and uh, he gathered all of his criminal prosecutors together. These are the best of the best of the best. They're hot shots. They've gone to the best schools, uh, best clerkships, and they think of themselves as the best. And he uh, said, how many of you guys have never lost a case? Bunch of hands shoot up because they're so proud of their trial records. And he said, well, me and my buddies have a name for you guys. You're the chicken shit club. Boom. Hands go down. (laughs) Did I say
0: up? I mean down. I mean down,
1: down, down. And, you know, the back straightened and essentially went on to say, look, your job is not about winning. It's not about racking up an undefeated record. Your job is to do justice. And if you are taking on the low hanging fruit, the easy pickings and beating them up and winning all the time, you're not doing your job. You need to take on the most powerful wrongdoers. Be ambitious.
0: Can you just discuss a little bit about how the roots of your desire to write this book? You covered the financial crisis, right? Yeah, absolutely. And What was striking about the financial crisis for you in covering it from the prosecutorial side?
1: Well, the financial crisis is the most calamitous economic event of our lifetimes of generations. It's the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. And we're still living with the consequences today, both economically and politically. So uh, I've been obsessed with it. I was obsessed with the building problem of the housing bubble before the crash. I wrote about the crash. I wrote about bad actions after the crash that bankers did um, to make it worse and to profit from it. Um, and then I waited around for the prosecutions and they never came um, and I waited and I waited and they never came and I could not understand it. So I just felt like I needed to really understand the inner workings of the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice to find out what what happened.
0: We um, had been talking about the financial crisis and its aftermath now in a, eight, nine, 10 years and of course there've been so many comments like you know no one's really gone to jail like you know one schlubby poor guy and Fabrice Touré fabulous fab and these you know weird seemingly extraneous people so what is it about the misdeeds of the financial crisis that should have been prosecuted in your mind what should what what was the what would have been the basis for the case
1: well, there are a lot of cases. I think dozens and dozens of bankers probably could have been prosecuted. And there are a variety of issues. One would just be simply misleading about the products. So there was fraud in the way mortgages were sold from the mortgage companies to the investment banks. That's step So that would one. be the mortgage companies. That would itself. be the mortgage companies themselves. So that would be countrywide, Wamu, New Century, Ameriquest, those kind of companies. Um, and uh, the, there's clear evidence of it, and there have been charges that just haven't been charges against individuals about that. Then there would be then the Wall Street banks bundled those securities and they um, knew what was in those. And they knew that there was a pipe and hot crap plenty, in there There's plenty of evidence that they knew or should have known willfully neglected it um, and uh, there's evidence that they um, they game the system there. Um, So there are sets of charges there. Then there would be sets of charges about misrepresenting your books, the value of your assets. In fact, one banker did go to prison for overseeing two traders who lied about the value of their mortgage securities on their books. That's a crime. You can go to prison for it. Now, there is no one, literally no one on Wall Street, Um, or no prosecutor who thinks that Kareem Sarageldin from Credit Suisse is the only guy who lied about the value of the mortgage securities at the height of the crash. That's just not feasible. It's not possible. So why couldn't they have made cases there? It's really inexplicable. And then I think the... Executives, the top executives, probably lied about the value of their assets, about the state of their business um, when they were talking to banks that were lending to them, the regulators, and the public.
0: So once the crap did hit the fan and everyone sort of had to come clean, it was my understanding in the heat of all of that that. All of these banks really did believe that the, the vice was going to be shut around them and that things were going to change and that there was going to be a much different regulatory regime. I think that in 2010-ish, there was some surprise that the Obama administration wasn't coming after them harder, even from on the regulatory front and also on the prosecutorial front, what does your reporting find about that period? Because I, I guess that there was a, a notion that Tim Geithner said, oh, no, don't go too hard on them because then they're going to go broke. They're going to blow up the whole financial system. Was there any rationality to that angle?
1: No, uh, there wasn't. Um I never found a smoking gun where Tim Geithner gives the order to Eric Holder to lay off the prosecutions. I don't believe that happened. Now, there was a message sent from uh, Geithner and uh, Obama that we didn't want the kind of Old Testament justice of sort of, um, mob, mob rule and pitchforks. And I think that that got communicated down through the prosecutorial ranks. They were also very worried about the stability of the system. So if they prosecuted a bank and put it out of business, that that would exacerbate the fragility of the capital markets. So there's all of that. But really, my argument is that They don't know how to prosecute individuals at the top ranks of corporate America, and it's something that was building before the financial crisis and persists to today, and it wasn't just about the banks. It's about industrial companies and tech companies and retailers, uh, et cetera. So my argument is that basically the reason why we didn't prosecute bankers coming out of the financial crisis is they didn't look, and if you don't look, you can't find
0: this goes back to uh, when you were a mere child in the dot-com boom and
1: bust. There, sadly, sadly not. Such you, are, a child. You,
0: you look so young, <laughs> vibrant. Um, talk a little bit about how the prosecution of this big, huge energy trading company, Enron, started to change the way... That some prosecutors looked at their jobs.
1: Yeah, and so the point of starting the book with Enron—it's a great story, and it's the inside story of how the prosecutors actually brought that cases and those cases and won. Um, It's never really been told before. But the point of it is that we used to know how to do this thing, and it wasn't that long ago that we used to prosecute top executives. We never did it really brilliantly. There's never been a golden age where any wrongdoer who was rich and powerful went was sure to go to prison, but there have been silver ages. So they gathered a team together. This is the Bush administration, the first justice department under the bush administration ashcroft and a guy named larry thompson who's a very interesting character in my book he's the deputy attorney general and bob muller everybody knows that name now they formed a task force and assigned prosecutors from all over the country to solely work on enron and they worked on enron for years and they painstakingly built the case against the top two executives making a lot of mistakes taking losses at the time but prevailing. And they finally put those two guys, they found them guilty. Um, juries found them guilty. And then, of course, Ken Lay dies before he goes to prison, but Skilling goes to prison.
0: For our youthful podcast listeners yes. here, um, Enron was an energy company, but it was a trading company. Essentially. It was a
1: trading company. It was the biggest fraud of the era before the financial crisis. Um, biggest fraud in generations. It was one of the most powerful and biggest and most popular companies in America coming out of the dot-com bubble. It imploded in a spectacular accounting fraud um, where they had really just been lying about their books and lying about their the assets on their balance sheet.
0: Part and parcel to that was that they had a big accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, basically reviewing the books and saying... Yeah, Some things aren't right. Some things are right. But they were enabling the bad behavior. I mean, the, the, absolutely. So that that's clear. So the Justice Department, were those two investigations going on concurrently with Enron and Arthur Anderson?
1: Yes. So, um, in fact, uh, the Enron Task Force f- first big prosecution is of Arthur Anderson before they start prosecuting the individuals at Enron. Um, So it's the same prosecutorial team. What happens is Arthur Anderson is the handmaiden to Enron's fraud. They are enabling, as you say, their accounting fraud. But they do something worse. What they do is when the investigation starts... Anderson literally destroys tons of documents.
0: There's like an email that goes out.
1: It's an email that goes out that says, uh, guys, um, I just want to remind you of our document retention policies. <laughs> Everybody understands the message, and they start destroying physical physical tons of documents, emails, everything related to the Enron audit. Um, and the government finds out about this. Um, they actually sort of self-report. And then what happens is... They refuse to admit that they've done anything wrong, Arthur Anderson, and they negotiate with the company for months before the government decides, well, we need to – we can't have – enter into an agreement where you don't admit wrongdoing. Now, the other point that I need to make is that Anderson was a recidivist company. It was a corrupt institution. It had – Overseen frauds at multiple companies like Waste Management and Sunbeam, WorldCom, subsequently, many, many instances of fraudulent accounting. And so when they didn't admit that they were going to do it, that they'd done anything wrong, the government decided, well, we have to take them to court.
0: Okay, so they go after Arthur Anderson and essentially they say,
1: Yes, this firm really screwed up. The jur- the jury decides that yes, they did obstruct justice, and uh, Anderson winds down. They um, they go out of business.
0: Now, do they go out of business because of this judgment? Well, it's
1: de- it's debatable. You can't um, you can't uh, pin it on any one factor. My view is that the prosecution accelerated its demise, but did not cause its demise. Um, there's a, uh, the, it's sort of obvious. The uh, customers were fleeing. And then right at the time of the trial, uh, another giant accounting fraud emerged, WorldCom, which was also, surprisingly enough, an Anderson client. So if Enron hadn't killed the firm, which I think it would have, WorldCom would have even more. So I think the partners wanted to get out of the company because they wanted to avoid uh, liability. So they were going to wind it up anyway.
0: Okay. So Anderson gets fried and Ron gets fried. But in a weird twist, what happens in the overturning of that decision yeah, for well, Anderson. Yeah, it's
1: really fascinating because um, and if the my book can do one thing it would be to rehabilitate the Anderson prosecution because what happens is the Department of Justice learns the Anderson prosecution is wrong. It was it was a mistake. It was overly aggressive. Why did they learn that? Well, they learned that because there's an incredible PR campaign and the PR campaign essentially changes the subject from accounting fraud and obstruction of justice and changes it to look at these innocent workers who you Uh, put out of um, work here. And the Department of Justice is terrified of this. Um, There are protests from the workers, the Anderson employees, and they decide, well, we can't really prosecute large companies anymore. So we need to settle with them for money.
0: And you say that... Arthur Anderson should have been put out of business, right?
1: I do. Occasionally, a rotten company that is um, flouting the law and has run into serial problems might have to be put out of business because there's no other reason. uh, There's no other way to remedy it or fix it. But I think more important than that is this is why you prosecute individuals. Individual executives, because if you're worried about the collateral consequences of prosecuting a large company, if you're worried about the employees who might be put out of business or the um, destabilization of the capital markets that would come from an indictment of a large company, focus on individuals. That's the solution. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger.
0: We'll get back to our interview with Jesse Eisenberg in just a minute. Uh, But now we need to take a little break in the action because you're really not going to control whether or not prosecutors are doing enough to put people behind jail bars. What can you do? You can take care of your own financial life. You can take control of your financial life. You can do so by sitting up, paying attention and working with an organization that wants to put your needs first. That's why I'm delighted that Betterment is the sponsor of our podcast. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor. Betterment offers low transparent advisory fees compared to traditional services. But more importantly, as your personal investment manager, Betterment's got your back. No commissions, no funds of their own. You can access a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts. Honest to goodness, this is a really easy way to get second opinions on what you're doing with your own financial life better off listeners can get up to six months managed for free for more information visit betterment.com slash better off betterment rethink what your money can do and now back to our interview with Jesse isinger so in, in thinking about that Enron and Arthur Anderson period can you talk about some of the characters who come back later. It really is becomes a little bit like deja vu, like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah, and absolutely. so so talk about the team from uh, Davis Polk that was a white shoe law firm in New York that uh, was representing Anderson and how those people moved on in, in the subsequent years and what happened there.
1: Sure. Well, um, one of the lead partners at Davis Polk who represents Anderson, Anderson is a bunch of lawyers um, from different firms. And they sort of going through the firms because they don't want to cooperate and some of the lawyers want to cooperate. One of the main guys is Robert Fisk, Bob Fisk. And he's a legend in the office who was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District in the 1970s when the Southern District did a much better job of this. Um, Fisk has this great reputation and his lieutenant is a guy named Dennis McInerney. They're both quite scarred by the um, Anderson prosecution. And they believe that the government has overreached and been cowboys. Um, And what happens is the Department of Justice really internalizes this notion. And so Dennis McInerney gets hired by the Obama DOJ in the fraud section of the main justice of the Washington, D.C. headquarters of the mm. Department of Justice. So he's overseeing the bank prosecutions or what might come of the bank prosecutions, and he's been scarred by this incredible prosecution of Arthur Anderson and Lanny Brewer, who heads up the criminal division, also not a Davis Polk, he's a from Covington Burling, a Washington power firm, and he also believes the Anderson prosecution was wrong, and Mary Jo White who is a former U.S. attorney in the Southern District, who becomes a major player in white-collar defense, becomes Obama's chairman of the SEC. So all these people have lived through this, and they believe that prosecutors are cowboys when when it comes to corporate fraud, and we have to rein ourselves in.
0: It's so crazy because it sounds also from, in reading the book, that some of these people might be really good lawyers, you know, whether you agree with them or not. But not really good decision makers. And I found that fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think they're all very smart and accomplished people. Um, but being a prosecutor is different from being a defense lawyer. And um, prosecuting a corrupt politician or a mobster or a drug dealer is a different proposition than prosecuting a white collar criminal. On average, U.S. attorneys do 0.29 trials a year, one trial every three years. In the 1970s, they did eight trials a year. No way. Trials have become a kind of uh, an incredibly rare event in the criminal justice system, which is a major problem for a variety of reasons. So in this case, what this means is that they're going up against defense lawyers who have much more trial experience than they they do, in addition to decades of experience defending these cases, and they, they don't like trials. They're worried about them. They'll never admit that. They will say we're great trial lawyers. But it, it's just they just lack the experience of it. You need to be in trial after trial after trial to understand juries, and juries are unpredictable, and they hate the lack of predictability of juries because sometimes you will lose. One of the fundamental problems here is they don't like losing, they like to preserve their winning records.
0: So we are now, you know, nine years later, and I guess. It, it, it's a little bit daunting to read the book because you feel like there's a never ending cycle here. I mean, it, it almost feels worse in a lot of ways because, I, like, the experience of, say, a friend of mine who used to be in the Eastern District, she said to me, You know, well, I got to put my kids through college. I got to leave this job yes. and go get a big job at a law firm because right. I got to put my kids through college. And so. Is there a way to stop that?
1: Well, so the revolving door seems like an enormously intractable problem. I understand it is both um, a seriously difficult problem to solve and also, let's get serious, not remotely going to be solved under the new administration or any time in the future. But I do think there are ways to solve it. One of the ways is to give prosecutors a lot more money. Um, These people are highly trained, very brilliant professionals, and they should be treated uh, and paid like that. They should be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars more than they make now. What do Um, they make now? They make they top out at about 150,000, which is a decent living in the middle of the country. But it's simply not enough to um, raise your kids in New York comfortably and, you know, surrounded by all this affluence. They should be affluent.
0: Especially if they're going to go make millions of dollars trying to be on the partner track at a big firm.
1: right? And a lot of these people don't want to go to big firms. They don't like it. It is drudgery and it is not it's not an appealing job. But they go to it because, you know, they're going to make two, three, seven million dollars a year sometimes when they really hit the peak. Let's be clear. The Department of Justice makes money for the government. It is a huge money maker for the treasury so some of that money should go to the prosecutors if they could make a very comfortable living being affluent in New York or Washington DC they would stay they're they, they are devoted to this job they like it they think that they're upholding justice and they are but they need to do a better job
0: and beyond the revolving door just getting back to the financial crisis itself were there lessons learned that may carry through for the next time? I mean, I hope it's not a next time because that hopefully was once in a generation. But should we not be doing these deferred prosecution agreements, which is basically like right. it feels a little bit like blackmail, like Eric Holder yeah, calls you or Elliot sure. Spitzer calls you if you're a New York person and you say, you know, I really would hate it if da 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 da. And, you know, could you just pay us $4 billion and and we'll call it a day.
1: So yeah exactly so what do they do now instead of prosecuting individuals? Well they settle with corporations So they don't indict corporations because that they, they learned that from Arthur Anderson and they sort of lost their focus on prosecuting individuals so instead what they do is they settle with corporations. So from last 15 years the Department of Justice has done 400 over 400 of these kind of deferred prosecution agreements which are really settlements with corporations compared to 18 in the decade prior. Hmm. So this has become the Way to prosecute corporate crime. The problem with it is one, critics on the right um, and corporations say we're being extorted for money. They name their price and we have to pay it, which is legitimate. Um, I think that there's some validity of that criticism. The people on the left say they're just writing checks and getting away with crimes um, and the shareholders are paying. That's entirely correct as well. And they don't put the facts out. So the public can't really ascertain whether there's a legitimate case or not. And then there's a final problem. They do not work. Mm. What we see is companies entering into settlements over and over and over again with the SEC and the DOJ. Pfizer, J.P. Morgan, BP, these companies have entered into multiple forms of settlements. They've had subsidiaries plead guilty. They've pled guilty for, to crimes. They, these are crimes, by the way. Deferred prosecution is a crime. It's not a no-admit-no-deny sort of settlement. Yet they continue to go on. They continue to break the rules. So these don't work.
0: Hmm. Do you just think, like, wow, some some of the good guys and gals
1: out there? Because some
0: of the characters are fantastic.
1: Thank you. There are heroes in the book. um, And their heroes are the people who try to go up against the system and resist. And one of the heroes is uh, Judge Jed Rakoff um, in the Southern District, who's a district court judge, who revolts against the SEC for reaching these settlements where nobody ever admits anything. Um, And he says, how can the public know? And he leads a revolt, and judges start to follow his lead. And, and I think it was courageous, and he was absolutely right. And two things happen. One is he sort of wins because the SEC admits that the, this is not a tenable policy. And we can't never have anyone ever admit that they've done anything wrong. And they start to get some guilty pleas. It's a kind of half victory because the guilty pleas don't really do anything. And then secondly, the Second Circuit— which is really one of the bad guys here. They are so corporate friendly now. They slap him down and say judges shouldn't be able to weigh in on these things, even though you need a judge's approval for it. It's a nonsensical decision. So he's one of the heroes. And there's another hero, Paul Pelletier, in the uh, in Maine Justice, who is you know a great working class guy who doesn't go to the prestigious law firm. I'm um, law school, and he works in Miami prosecuting drug. Offenders, and then he starts prosecuting drug and mob lawyers. And he's got an incredible amount of trial experience. Then he works his way up through the system prosecuting big corporations. And he gets to main justice and he's um, beloved. He's a huge character. He's like the mayor of the building. And um, he clashes with the technocrats in the Obama administration who have come from the stodgy uh, white shoe firms. And uh, they're fighting and they oust him and don't appreciate his skill set.
0: That's a little bit of a bummer, I have to say. That part of the story I was not psyched about. I was well, like, oh, God. This is like, you want him to be like go on and go. I don't know. You just wanted him better things to have happened.
1: This is, I hate to tell people, I, I, uh, I hope they d- doesn't put them off the book, but this is not a book with a happy
0: ending. I know. Could you make a happy ending for me? I, I wish me I could. I'd like,
1: I'd like some of these guys to go to prison.
0: So someone's listening to this, Like, what can we do as citizens to try to make our voices heard in this battle?
1: Well, there is a role for statutory efforts here. Um, You know, changing the statutes to make new white-collar crime statutes, putting pressure on politicians to think about this as a problem is something that uh, the average citizen could do. I think people are really angry about this. You know— that nobody was held accountable for the financial crisis. And the American public saw that, and they were angry about it. And I think that it undermined Obama. Um, People didn't think that Obama was really cracking down and that he was in the pocket of Wall Street, and it undermined Hillary Clinton, who gave those speeches to Wall Street. And people didn't believe her when she campaigned on cracking down on corporate crime. She said, I want to throw more people in prison, but people didn't believe her. She didn't have credibility. And then when Donald Trump said... These people are in the pocket of Wall Street and Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton are in the pocket of Goldman Sachs. It resonated. Um, so he ran on this. He capitalized on it. Now, of course, that was a complete con job because he installed multiple Goldman Sachs bankers into his cabinet. So they were con But he still, you know, it, it, he rode the coattails of this anger into office.
0: Jesse Isinger, before you leave... Author of the Chicken Shit Club, uh, writer. Are you have a, a special title at ProPublica?
1: Yeah, I'm a senior reporter and editor.
0: Senior reporter and editor at ProPublica. <laughs> Pro Jesse, we started the interview and I asked you your best financial decision, and you said, you know, basically staying with journalism and figuring out how to make a career of it. Yeah. Now come clean, Mister. Your worst financial decision. <laughs>
1: um, I. I've owned one stock in my lifetime. It was the street.com where I was – it was a uh, dot-com publication that went public in the late 90s, and I was there, and I got stock. Um, We shot up to over 70 bucks on the first day. It was part of the dot-com bubble, and I I had a few shares. And I, but I was locked up. I had friends and family, and it dropped and it dropped and dropped. And when by the time that I was unlocked, I decided by my own, you know, uh, back of the envelope valuation that it was worth more than that. So maybe it was at 30 and I thought it was worth 35. Then it dropped to 25. I thought it may well, it's probably worth 30. Then it dropped to 20 and I thought, oh, it's probably worth 25. And the day I sold it, it was $1. I finally gave up and I sold it and I bottom ticked it. It was the absolute bottom, historical bottom, and then it bounced. So I the one stock I've owned, I actually sold it on probably the day or the the week of its bottom.
0: So you were that schnook.
1: I'm that schnook. Thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. There's always one of us, believe me.
0: <laughs> Jesse Isinger, his book is The Chicken Chip Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Jesse, thank you so much for joining Thanks. us. This was
1: fun. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger.
0: Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. Very excited. We have a first, someone with a cool accent. It really, if you have an accent, you're getting on the show. I promise you, right now. Uh, If you would like to get on the program with or without an accent, be sure to send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Right now, it's Rob in Los Angeles. Hey, Rob, welcome to the show. What can I do for you?
2: Hi, Joe, It's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: All right. So where's that cool accent from?
2: Uh, originally from Australia, but now here in L.A.
0: Oh, it doesn't sound like an L.A. accent. I'm going to stick with Australian. What's on your okay. mind? What can I do for you?
2: Okay, I've got a bit of a question. So um, pretty basic one. I've still got some, uh, some funds in Australia that uh, it's about, I'm thinking about $40,000. I just kind of want to work out what to do with it, whether maybe I invest it uh, in an investment account in Australia or if I maybe do a... Um, exchange and bring it here and put it into my you know into my IRA and my investment account here and I'm you know I'm just not really too sure if I should maybe leave it in its in its native currency or if I should if I should move it over what would what would you say in that situation
0: so tell me a little bit about yourself how old are you I'm 31 okay single married
2: married three young children Mm. six and under
0: what tell me about your status are you a resident are you a citizen what's your status here
2: Sure. Yeah, I am a permanent resident. I actually married a, uh, a lovely girl from the from the south, from Tennessee, and uh, she lived in Australia for a number of years. But we've since moved here and and established our roots here in the U.S. And we plan on staying here for a good while.
0: Okay. Will you be going back and forth?
2: Not likely. Not for any sort of uh, like relocation or anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, not planning on moving back anytime soon. This is. This is definitely where we see ourselves for a good for a good long term.
0: Okay, and uh, tell me about your life here. Tell um, how much do you make together? What are you doing for your own financial life? What's going on?
2: Sure. So uh, my wife stays at home to look at our, look after our three children. I so it's a single income family. I'm on about seventy thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually um, have bought a house here in LA, and I was able to put down thirty uh, percent on that, which you know helped us get get that going. So, um, you know, we're kind of settling into that sort of arrangement. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of where we're at. I'm trying to save as much as I can into, into my retirement account. I maxed out my IRA for the first time last year and hope to do the same again this year.
0: Oh, great. Um, are you an employee or do you work for yourself?
2: Uh, I'm an employee.
0: Retirement account at work?
2: Uh, we do have a 401k, but... I had a look at it, tell you just recently started up, and I actually don't really uh, like, the, like the look of it. The fees were quite high, mm. the investment options. Um, I, I don't know. I just didn't – I wasn't too, too sure about it.
0: Okay. Well, you know what? If, if that's the case, then you're better off with an IRA anyway. So that's good. I presume it's a Roth IRA, yes? Yes, it is. Okay, great. How about um, emergency reserve fund? What do you have yep. there?
2: So I've got I've – got, uh, in the bank here, I've probably got about $15,000 – Okay. Uh, Here in in a US account.
0: Okay, all right. Now, tell me what is in Australia and what you would be considering moving over here.
2: Sure. So I've got about I've still got about forty five thousand Australian dollars, uh, which in US money is probably about thirty three thousand dollars at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, which is actually just the balance. So I did sell some real estate in Australia.
0: Okay, so it's that thirty three thousand dollars that you're talking about, right? Yes, it is. Okay, a couple of things here. If you brought that money over, there would be an event where you'd have to obviously convert the currency. So, but, you know, I don't know. Like, if you told me that you plan to go back there eventually or that you're, you know, you really, you know, you've got a little pad on Lizard Island and you want to go, you know, scuba diving every winter with your family, then I would just say leave it there. But it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like you're really your life is here, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I think you bring it over here. And mm-hmm. it's going to stink. Whatever you'll figure out. You know, you'll pay. You'll pay the conversion. It gets over here. Now, once it gets here, I guess the question is what to do with it then. And um, does so right now is putting the the money into your retirement account. Is does that suck up all of the available funds that you have?
2: No, not at all. So, um, so obviously, if I get it here and say we've got the, the thirty five, I've almost maxed out my IRA for this year. Yep. Um, so what I was thinking is, if that's the case, maybe I should open one for my wife as Definitely. well. As at home and, and put as much as I can into hers, and then put the rest just into into my savings account yep. and, and, and park it there.
0: That's what I was thinking exactly. So I, what I would do is I would have the money here, and I would be maxing out both of your both two Roth IRA accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about the the for the kiddies. Do you want to do any college saving? How do you feel about that? Um,
2: At the moment, it it hasn't been something I've been thinking about, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's probably something I need to research a little bit more. I'm still kind of new to to how a lot of those types of accounts work here in the U.S. So there's probably something I do need to research. It hasn't been high on my list of of priorities at at this point. Um, You know, if they choose the college route or, you know, other, you know, less conventional uh, means, you know, they're both Australian citizens, so all three of them are Australian citizens, so they could, Potentially go back to Australia to study, which is, you know, a a lot more cost effective than it is here.
0: I like that idea when you say cost effective. I was about to say cheaper like that. That's definitely a good game plan. All right. That's fine. If you're going to be researching anything about college then um, and if they plan to go to U.S. colleges, then you can use a Section 529 plan. If not, uh, you know, you can throw some money into, like you said, a general investment account. I mean, look, 15000 bucks in just sort of emergency reserve is fine. You could top it off. I say bring the money here. Get those IRAs funded, invested. And with the surplus, because you have such young kids, it might be worthwhile to just sort of stay put for a little bit and see how things shake out. But I think it sounds like you're you've got a good game plan. And uh, I, I like the idea of consolidating your assets. Also, just FYI, it's sort of a drag to have assets in two different countries for estate planning purposes. So that's really the, yet another argument for bringing the money back here.
2: And it means that I have to fall S bars either.
0: Exactly. There you go. Uh, but you still got the accent, man. And, and I think that's worth a lot. So, you know, you might have, you may not have the little dollars, as my family says. We have, I have cousins and an aunt and uncle in Australia. So where were you from in Australia?
2: Uh, originally from Sydney, I was born and and bred and grew up in Sydney.
0: Nice, my family is uh, Sydney as well. Mossman. Yep.
2: All right. Yep. It's a beautiful part of the world.
0: It's a, not a bad thing. All right, my friend Rob. Thank you so much for calling. Good luck. Get that money over here.
2: Thanks very much. Have a great day, Joe. Take
0: care. Bye bye. Thanks again to Jesse Eisinger. Go get his book, The Chicken Chick Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at That's Ask Jill at And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Telercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.